the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to my good friend, Aaron Le Boutelier. Aaron is one of those people who has lived a full life. It would take an episode just to run through everything that he's accomplished. He recently completed his master's degree in criminology and criminal psychology and is now on to his PhD. For close on two decades, Aaron has lived in Thailand. He speaks fluent Thai and owns Tree Roots Retreat, a beautiful space carved out five minutes from the beach in Rayong. He has met his fair share of challenges too, most notably surviving the 2004 earthquake and subsequent tsunami that took hundreds of thousands of lives in South and Southeast Asia. He wrote a book about his experience entitled, And Then One Morning. His life is inspired by adventure. From running across the Sahara Desert in the Marathon de Saab, his obsession with jiu-jitsu, and his love of surfing. In this episode, we discuss turning fear and anxiety into an ally, extreme adventures and what you can learn from those experiences, and having a positive attitude. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Here's my first question, Aaron. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? There's a lot rattling around in my brain when you say that. And I think if you would have asked me that at different stages of my life, I would have given you different answers. But as you asked me that, as I approach 50, I'm going to say, not, con- not confirming with, the, with the, the masses, not following the, the, the average person, assuming responsibility, being informed, and possibly a curse, a disease. Because when you don't know what it is that you've got, a lot of people will tell you that it's a disease. And uh, that's something that I've realized quite recently. All right, you know what? So now that you're saying that, maybe expand on that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Um, okay, so let's, let's rewind to the Aaron of, um, of being a teenager. So, you know, you're a teenager. You haven't had access to the literature that you might want to read. Um, you're full of hormones. Uh, you're not interested in school. Your parents are great parents. I'm not nothing bad to say about my my childhood. Um, they gave me the tools that they thought were best for me, based on their experiences in life. But deep down in your soul, you know something is not right. You know that um, following the masses and doing what everyone tells you to do at school doesn't resonate with you. You know that it's not your calling. However, you're the only person that really realizes this. 
And everyone in your immediate circle tells you, well, I don't know why you're thinking that, Aaron, because what makes you so special? You leave school, you get yourself a job, you work hard. If you're lucky, you'll find someone that loves you. And then you're going to have some children. And if you're really, really lucky, you'll retire with a beautiful watch from whichever company you're working for. And you'll spend the last 10 years of your life um, doing the gardening. This is what I was told. And I knew 100% that there had to be something else. I mean, there had to be a different life. Um, and that was a curse. Because when you don't follow everybody, then you're ostracized. And I, and I read an interesting article about the evolution of our species. And it kind of talks about this um, tribal, tribal philosophy, kind of like a tribal matrix that, that has been around since the beginning of time, which is you're born into a tribe. And if you do what that tribe says, and you follow the rules of the tribe, that everything is good. No, no problems. But you start moving outside of that tribe. You start wandering a little bit further than you're meant to go. You start saying that maybe we shouldn't light the fire at seven o'clock in the evening. We should light the fire later on in the evening. What happens to you? Well, from an evolutionary process, you, uh, you get killed. You know, they, they hang you for witchcraft because you're a little bit weird. Or, or they kick you out of the tribe. So I'm thinking, and I'm no anthropologist, but I'm thinking that a lot of people just through, through the evolution of the gene don't really go further than their tribe because they know through education and maybe the gene that it's not good for you. Whereas I've discovered it's the best thing for you. It's not an easy path, but it's the best thing. If you want to have the best version of yourself, you must not conform with everybody else. It has been my experience. Yeah. Well, I, we're in total agreement there. And I think in some ways we share a lot of similarities, right? So maybe a bit of a disclaimer before we go into just some of your backstory is that we are good friends. So I'm very well acquainted with your backstory and we've had lots of conversations about this, but if you're open to sharing today, I think it would be beneficial for other people to hear some of your experiences. And I think a lot of them, and one in particular, definitely speaks to this idea of self-reliance. And that was, the, was in 2004, correct? That was the time of the Indian Ocean earthquake that then ultimately resulted in a tsunami and it wiped out a considerable amount of land space in the Southeast Asian area, right? So maybe you can take us back to that because that was a big uh, turning point in your life. That was something that has really resonated and stuck with you. And if anything, really pushed you to not conform because of that experience. You wrote a book about it and we'll put that link up so that people can get it. But maybe take us back. Where were you? How did that whole thing unfold? And then we can just kind of explore it from there. Yeah. So the tsunami was, um, was my biggest present from the universe. That, that was my big Christmas present. And uh, a lot of people kind of feel uneasy about me saying that because, you know, I, I lost one of my closest friends. Um, his, his children pretty much died in front of me. Um, I saw 
just the worst of 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 that disaster however um it, it was a gift and the reason why i feel it was a gift is because i learned the lesson that life can be taken from you in a heartbeat you can plan all you want about what you're going to do with your retirement with your money with your life but mother nature or the universe has maybe a different plan for you and knowing that at any point in your life your life can be taken from you and to have been put in a position where my life was one second from being taken from me but it not being taken from me and been continuing my life has been the biggest lesson because now i am confronted with normal problems that everyone faces with um relationship problems health problems um financial problems before the tsunami i could have possibly been knocked to the ground a little bit with those issues maybe i would of dwelled on them a little bit more than i should have done maybe i would have let them manifest in my mind and for those demons to take over and to possibly say to myself while well, i made a mistake leaving the tribe i went to thailand to start to do my own thing and look at me now i've got no money and my my life is falling apart maybe i should return back to the tribe go back to jersey with the tail between my legs for all my friends to say told you you see now you're back again but the tsunami kind of put everything into perspective and made me realize just be true to who you are don't try and be the version of yourself that your environment dictates of you just be you and you will be okay and i was okay on that day i was true to myself i acted from some deep core of my personality which meant that i survived it wasn't an easy process i fought for my life i mean i know other people fought for their lives and they they died i mean there's nothing i can say about that i certainly don't feel guilty about that i know a lot of people have some kind of complex that why did they die and why didn't i die and some kind of guilt complex but you know they died i didn't um was there some kind of divine intervention no i if i was an atheist before the tsunami then i am whatever the next level up is on atheism after the tsunami um there's no way a true loving god could have allowed what i saw to happen to anybody especially the children that i saw suffering and die but it did give me a more deep rooted connection to mother nature and and at the beginning we we spoke about what self reliance means to me and um we spoke about the the curse and the non conform non conformity always have trouble with that word it always comes out as conformity um but the other thing i didn't mention was was this connection to mother nature and i and i think when i talk about self reliance as i get older nature is becoming much more of a stronger focus possibly from the tsunami because i saw mother nature have a little burp you know a little burp in the indian ocean no no major thing but hundreds of thousands of people died um and it all happened in a heartbeat 
And that's the power of mother nature. You think that you are somehow above all of this because we as humans um, are so much more advanced <clears throat> and developed. Um, but the reality is that uh, we are behind mother nature. And when people talk to me about how to be more self-reliant, of course, this, this question of mindfulness creeps in. And I'm, I don't really want to talk too much about mindfulness with you. You are, you know, you have a PhD in mindful leadership, so you know this more than anybody. But people always talk about meditation and, and being more mindful and how that's going to help them with self-reliance. But they always talk about it like it's a chore, like, you know, it's something you need to do and they struggle with it because they can't sit in a full lotus position. Like that's something that's really important. Um, and what I'm starting to realize and what I say to people is the next time it's raining, just put on a t-shirt and a pair of shorts and sit in the rain. You want to know about mindfulness and about your connection to nature, which ultimately improves self-reliance. I feel sit in the middle of a monsoon, and feel the mud through your toes and feel the rain on your bald head and you will feel something no need to overanalyze it or try and figure out what the hell it is just enjoy the experience and to go back to your initial question yeah the tsunami was a gift i felt like i was introduced to mother nature for the first time i felt her energy i survived her energy she taught me to maybe um, bring myself down a few pegs in how I view myself and how I think of myself and how great I may think I am as a businessman or someone that has built a business in Thailand and Singapore. Ultimately, strip all that away and um, be a little more humble in the way that you approach your life, the people around you, and most importantly, how you approach yourself. I mean, if you're not real to yourself, then self-reliance, I think, can never grow in you. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I want to go back, because as I said, I mean, I know, I know the story and we've spoken about it. I want to go back to that moment when you're in the building and, and you, can, you can tell the story better than I can about what was actually going on. You saw people holding onto a pillar, they wouldn't let go. And ultimately you had to make a choice. And had you not made that choice in that moment in time, and maybe you can speak to intuition Yeah, things would have been very different. Yeah, I mean, you know, intuition is a word that's banded around all the time, right? When people talk about self-reliance and mindfulness. Um, I think intuition doesn't really come into play unless you feed it with information. Um, again, you know this very well because you came from a background where you had no education you now have intuition as you approach 50, but that intuition is based on you having a PhD and a master's and many other things. It means your intuition is a lot better. So for me, my intuition, when the tsunami hit, when I was however old I was in 2004, 34, I think, um, you know, that was based on where I was at that point in my life and the experiences that I had fed my brain. Um, I had spent some time in the police force before that had happened. I had been through some training that maybe improved my intuition for survival. I don't know. I think about that quite a lot. Um, I woke up at about just before 10 a.m. Um, I had a boil on my ass. Why I had a boil on my ass, I have no idea. 
let's not even discuss why that happened, but it happened. So I went to the doctors and he said, okay, you know what? No problem. Um, for those for those listeners that have been to Thailand, especially PP, you'll know that most doctors just ask you what your favorite color is and then they give you a pill for that color. So, um, you know, a normal thing is like, what's your favorite color? Pink, I said. He's all right, here you go, here's some pink tablets, but don't drink alcohol with them. So the night before the tsunami, I had had no alcohol and I went to bed at around midnight. And you talk about intuition. I had such a strong feeling idea concept that just rushed into my mind which was if pp caught fire how would everyone cope because the fire would spread so quickly now why that thought came into my mind i have no idea but it definitely came into my mind because i remember lying in bed thinking what a bizarre thought and why am i pondering on this as i fall to sleep there is no relevance to it so one could say maybe my intuition was trying to tell me something that there was a disaster about to happen. But unfortunately, the problem with intuition is most people never listen to it. So I didn't listen to it. I just kind of went to sleep. Okay, so 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm hearing screaming. Um, Screaming like I've only ever heard in the movies before. I mean, there's a scream like you close the car door and your fingers are still in there. There's that scream. And then there's the scream of pure fear. And if you've never heard that scream, difficult to understand what it is, but maybe some of the listeners understand that scream. It was that one. So it kind of rattled me to the core and I immediately jumped out of bed and opened the curtains to my window, which were directly facing this little sandy street that connected one end of PP to the other. Again, People that know PP know that to walk from one bay to the other bay takes like a minute and a half. It's, it's very small and it's flat. So I opened the window and I saw two things that I talk about in my book that are very crystal clear in my mind. One is everyone running up the street with a thin layer of water following them. And in my book, that chapter is called, I think, uh, The Washing Machine Springs a Leak, something like that. Because if you have a washing machine installed and it's installed incorrectly and you turn it on, all the water rushes across the floor like an inch high. So I saw this water rushing up the street an inch high and I saw everyone screaming in total panic. I then looked across at... um, one of the key figures in my life um, is a guy called Heinz, uh, who owned a dive shop. And I saw him reaching for the shutters of his dive shop and pulling them down as he was holding one of his daughters called Anna. And um, Heinz was quite a tough guy, came from Austria. And I'd never really seen him scared all the years I'd known him. But he looked up at me And again, I will never forget that look. He looked at me as if to say, good luck, because I can see something that you can't. And he could see something that I couldn't because of the bend of the street. So I immediately thought terrorists, someone has got a meat cleaver and they're running up the street or someone has taken too many drugs and they've gone crazy. The water, I just didn't really register in my mind. And, um, So I decided to walk out of my room 
all of that taking about two seconds. I walked out of my room onto a balcony that was facing the street with a, a wooden staircase down. I was on the first floor. By the time I'd got to the, the front of the entrance, um, I was fighting for my life. I mean, we're talking less than five seconds from me waking up, seeing the people running, seeing Hines, walking out my room, standing at the staircase, which was a stairwell leading down to the street. The water was now on the first floor of my guest house, which was directly opposite his dive shop called Mosquito Diving. And the water was a torrent. Um, I don't know the speed. Um, people often say, well, you know, you surf, why couldn't you just jump in the water and go with it? I mean, we're talking like 60 miles an hour or something. Mm. I mean, around that, you, it, it's got lumps of concrete in there, corrugated roofing. The noise is like standing next to a plane taking off. Your uh, amygdala has now been, I mean, we're not talking about an amygdala hijack. What's the next stage after amygdala hijack? Like, uh, like a total amygdala takeover, like a revolution of, of I mean, I'm now heart rate 200. And um, in that second, I said to myself, as the building was starting to shake, wow, that's, that's how I die. Aaron dies in a tsunami in Thailand. I mean, it sounds kind of cool, right? You know, whatever happened to Aaron? Oh, he died in Thailand in a tsunami. It's kind of the way I'd like to go um, with a little bit of a story attached to it. Anyway, um, I accepted my fate that I was going to die. There was a French couple, I think they were, that were standing behind me in the hallway and they were holding on to each other. And then there was a Japanese woman, I think Japanese in the, in the end room. Just as I was kind of preparing to die, I had just the weirdest vision of my mother. And, and again, you know, the, it, <laughs> I have such a strong relationship with my mother. And I thought, okay, so I'm gonna die. And this is all we're talking like nanoseconds, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to die. So then, you know, two or three days time, my mum is going to be calling, phones off. Um, she's going to realise something is wrong. 200,000 people dead. Um, at some point, she's going to have to take a flight to Thailand. Um, she hates flying. Um, she's going to arrive in Bangkok and she's going to try and get a plane to Phuket. It's going to be a disaster. And then she's going to have to get a, a bus or a taxi from Phuket to the temple in Krabi. And then she's going to have to identify my body. My goodness, my mother will never forgive me if I die today. She's going to be really, really annoyed with me. So, no, I'm not going to die. Not for me, but if I'm honest, for my mother, because I know that uh, it would kill her if I died. I mean, I have to, she, I have to live longer than my mum. This is written in stone. So um, I turned around. I ran up and down the hallway. I looked for like a... Um, uh, a shaft, like a, a ventilation or an access point into the roof, which was something that had cropped up on a, on a police training course. Um, I punched that. There was nothing there. I run up and down. Everyone was just frozen. And I know you talk about the amygdala hijack and the freeze. Absolutely. They, were, they could not move. I ran back again to where the water was. Again, this is now maybe two seconds further down the line. And for whatever reason, I must have noticed that the post office next door, which was a steel structure, uh, seemed to be pretty solid. My structure was wooden, bolted to concrete posts, which was already swaying quite, quite dramatically. And um, I don't know, maybe it was watching too many Indiana Jones movies. I, 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 le I leapt, 
from my building to the post office. We're talking about a leap of two feet. Um, but anyway, I leapt onto that balcony. I ran along that metal staircase of the post office. There was a drain pipe that led up to the apex roof of the PP hotel. I clambered up that and roughly five seconds later, 10 seconds maybe, I'm sitting on the apex of the PP hotel and there are 1,500 people dead. Now, from me waking up to sitting on the roof, we're talking 10 seconds. Why did that happen to me? Why am I able to relay that story with such clarity? I have no idea. Did God have a bigger meaning for me? Absolutely not. I don't think any divine intervention was involved. There was a lot of rolling of the dice. I was in the right place at the right time. I made the right decisions based on intuition, which is based on my life experiences to that point, which meant that I survived. But there's two things there too, though, Aaron, if I remember correctly. One, you encouraged those people to come with you and they couldn't because they were completely frozen in place. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I, 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 I wanted to be a leader. It came natural to me and I wanted to save people, but some people can't be saved. Second to that is as you took that jump, that building disappeared. Yeah, the, the building opposite uh, mosquito diving kind of uh, took quite a hit. Um, there was some of the structure left there the next morning, but a lot of that had collapsed. Like a lot of buildings had collapsed. And um, but also the structure that you jumped from, right? That, uh, that uh, air, where were you and you were in a bed and breakfast yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah. it was, it was right? That also disappeared yeah, as well. It collapsed. Concrete post yeah. left. We went back there the next day and uh, there was a lot of rubble throughout the whole of PP. Um, okay, some of the concrete structures were there, but most, most buildings are wood, corrugated roofing, bolted mm. to a concrete post. So there's a lot of concrete posts left, left, but not a lot of flooring or roofing. What happened after that? So once you got on top of that roof? Um, what happened next was maybe a few seconds of just trying to digest what had happened. Um, I ran back along the roof, uh, no, the staircase of the post office, and I noticed that um, mosquito diving had also kind of collapsed. There was a lot of water in there, and there was a woman where Heinz used to sit, and it looked like the roofing had fallen on top of her, and she was screaming. I had another valuable life lesson here. I thought in my panic that it was Heinz's wife. Um, in fact, it wasn't Heinz's wife. It was another woman that got washed in there. But I was always seeking approval from Heinz. I'm not too sure why. Um, I think he was such a cool guy that I just wanted him to say that I was cool too. I mean, I'd known him since I was 22 when I first arrived in PP. And I, I have to be honest, I had this kind of feeling that if it was Heinz's wife and I swam in there and saved her, then this would ultimately gain Heinz's respect and he would think that I was, you know, cool. So I wanted to um, swim, wade across that road that was separating the guest house to mosquito diving. But at this stage, all the water was rushing out and there was just lumps of concrete and stuff hurtling past in front of me at a hell of a rate. But I still wanted to go in and save her. And again, in my book, I, I, sit there for I don't know how long maybe five minutes maybe less I couldn't do it <laughs> I wanted to save her but I also froze um, 
and I, and I couldn't jump in. I was too scared. <clears throat> I mean, I was really scared. And um, the more she screamed, the more it kind of tore at my amygdala to the point where my true self really said, Aaron, if you don't go in there, you're going to live the rest of your life saying to yourself, you know, that woman might, might be alive if you'd made the effort. And, and I would never forgive myself. So um, there was a little bit of cord or rope or cable that was in the water that was flapping around. And I held on to that and I made my way across um, and I swam into mosquito diving, realized it wasn't Heinz's wife, swam out with her, pulled her across to where I was. And um, that set the tone for me. Once I'd done that, I was kind of on a bit of a mission to go around the island <laughs> and see what I could do. I'd been given a, a super drug. I was now invincible. And I'd met a few other people like that. One of them was Angelo. He, he, he's still living there now. He had a restaurant called Mama Restaurant. He was also a little crazy anyway. So he also helped me do a lot of things. But um, I met that woman about two years later, uh, 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 some function in Peepee. And um, she came up to me and said, you must be don't remember me, but um, you saved my life. And she gave me a hug. Talk about emotional. When someone gives you a hug, because you saved their life. This is powerful stuff. Um, uh, then I went back to the PP Hotel. We're now 10 minutes after the tsunami, 1,500 people dead. No police, no ambulance, nobody coming. Um, and then you see the followers and the leaders. And most people were in absolute panic, screaming, um, just making no sense. And then a handful of people, and again, I, I know this in the book, a majority of them were Israeli. They seemed to have the ability to just understand what was happening and be very, very focused in how to move forward. And it was noticeable with the Israelis that they had this ability. Um, then, yeah, there were two groups of people for the next 24 hours. There was the group that needed assistance and needed leadership. And there were the ones that were leaders. And you had no choice in it. You just had to be true to what your calling was. And if you weren't a leader, you weren't a leader. And I think a lot of people suffer from that psychologically. When you think you're a leader, and then you realize that you ain't. What stood out for me there was the part where you were you know, you, you allowed your ego to set in, right? Where you're like, oh, if I, you know, if that's Heinz's wife and I save her, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look good in Heinz's eyes. So even in a crisis situation, in a life and death situation, our ego is still very much there. But it was only until you really moved into your authentic self and let the ego go that you were able to overcome your fear and actually cross that water and save that woman, regardless if it was Heinz's wife or not. That really speaks to self-reliance, right? I mean, this idea of doing things driven from your deepest core, who you fundamentally are, irrespective of what is happening around you. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people talk about letting go of the ego. It's something that's, that crops up also in the martial arts world, right? I mean, you know, you, you go to a lot of gyms and they say, leave your ego at the door, and people always say, leave your ego 
I, I understand what people mean by that. And I also subscribe to that philosophy. And I also realized that my ego was um, in play there. But I would also like to mention that my ego also saved my life to a degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you do need ego. Anyone that says you let go of your ego 100% don't have an ego. I, I'm not too sure I would agree with that. I've always had a rather large ego. I don't like people giving me feedback. If I do something wrong, I don't need to know about it. If I, if I write a paper and someone starts telling me that I, this isn't right, I'm, I, I don't want to listen. <laughs> well, why is that? It's because of my ego. But in the same breath, that ego has driven me to accomplish what I've accomplished. And it's, it's not like any great accomplishments, but I kind of thank my ego for that. Mm, no, no, I think that's really important. I think that distinction is, is, is important because, as you note, there is this kind of idea, especially in the spiritual circles, where the whole thing is about distinguishing or extinguishing the ego. But yeah, without an ego, you are not a whole person. And as you noted, you, know, you need your ego to be able to achieve anything in life. Otherwise, you're just going to do what? Are you just going to sit in a cave in a lotus position for the rest of your existence. I mean, what kind of existence is that? Not only are you not really doing anything for yourself, fundamentally, you're not making any positive change or doing anything of value in the life that you have outside of that experience. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could say that if, if you have a large ego, but you don't realize it, that's a problem. Well, that's called narcissism, right? That's a completely different thing. Right, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say to people, for all right all right yeah okay i accept i got a bit of an ego i like to talk a lot i like the stories yeah sure i I, but that's me and i use that to my advantage um but i know when to wind it in and i know when to to you know put it on a chain and let it go to sleep it's not like it's out playing all the time right but sometimes especially in business i mean if if you talk about self-reliance in connection with with business and you don't have a little bit of an ego to give you the confidence in a situation where you might have to shoot from the hip a little bit. And if you're in business and you've never shot from the hip, then there's definitely something wrong, right? We've all done it to, to get that new contract or to get a new client. Um, you need an ego to pull that off because people need to believe you. Mm-hmm. So let's pivot a little bit here. Let's talk about your crazy, insane ultra marathons that you have been doing over the last, is it several years? That's ego. Yeah. So f- first of all, you know, tell the listeners what those marathons were. And then I think what would be interesting is what did you get out of it? Um, apart from blisters. Um, <laughs> so Okay, I've asked myself many times why I initially did the Marathon des Sables, which is meant to be the toughest foot race on the planet. There's going to be listeners that do ultra marathons that go, that's not the toughest one. There's another one even tougher. All right, maybe it's not the toughest one. But anyway, it's up there, right? It's one of the toughest because you have to carry your own food with you. You sleep on the floor. Um, there's no toilets. There's no showers. It's five days, 280 kilometers or give or take a few. So why did I do it? I think the first reason was that I was left a little bit short after the tsunami on the adrenaline hit. I was like on a Hollywood movie set. 
I mean, I'm jumping across buildings. There's buildings collapsing. There's people dying all around me. I'm seeing trauma. I'm seeing dead bodies. I'm seeing people sliced in half. And at the end of it, I survive. Can you imagine the dopamine, adrenaline, and all the other hormones and chemicals that my body experienced? We're talking about the biggest adrenaline hit you can get in your life. And then nothing. And you only have to speak to people that have, have served. And they will be the first to tell you that it can be very addictive when you are being shot at or someone's trying to kill you. In my case, it was mother nature, but you survive. You're like, wow, wow. Maybe, maybe I want to try that again. Maybe I can do better next time. So what does one do about it? Well, of course you don't wish to be in another natural disaster. That would certainly be crazy. But I did come across this race called the Marathon des Sables, where they kind of marketed it as you know, going up against nature, the Sahara. And that really spoke to me because I thought, well, I've been, I've been up against Mother Nature before. We have a relationship. And, uh, it's your nemesis. It's your nemesis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, well, you know, let's, let's meet again. Um, and then another part, which is something I've been speaking to a few other runners about, is once you post something on Facebook, that you're going to do something like that. It's very difficult to back down because everyone is looking at it. Wow, you're going to do the marathon. They saw it. It's so cool. Wow, I wish I could do that. And good luck and good luck. And all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, no. <laughs> I've, got, I've got no choice now. I've got to do the bloody thing. So it pushes you. I mean, this is a positive for Facebook. And I, I know there's a lot of negative stuff about it. But on the positive side, you know, if you post something on Facebook that you're going to do something, maybe the Facebook community will help you get through it because they will give you the momentum that you need to achieve it. So it got published. I'm doing it. Um, I bought all the kit. You've got to have all the kit. You know, you're going to run across the Sahara. You've got to, you've got to look the part. Um, and then I started training for it. That's also addictive. Again, you know what it's like when you train hard. The, the, the dopamine hits and that, that feel-good factor you get, that's, that's addictive. You want to do it all the time. So then we're getting close to the ultramarathon. I wasn't doing it with anybody. I didn't know anyone that was doing it. I didn't want to do it with anybody. I just wanted the experience of flying into the middle of the Sahara with a group of people that seemed to know what they were doing and then running for five days solid across it. And this was just me and me against mother nature. Um, and to a degree, the Facebook community that I had broadcast it to. So I flew to Gatwick. Um, we all met all, all the, all the runners, all the racers. We were shoved on a, on a, on a plane, a charter plane to some obscure Moroccan airport. And that feeling of camaraderie, that feeling of, being with another group of people that are also just a little bit crazy, going back to that word that I can't pronounce, the non-conformity. Um, you know, you're with people that aren't conforming with other people. So then we drive for 12 hours in the wrong direction <laughs> and then we get dropped off at some godforsaken place. And, um, you know, you register and again, there's this amazing adrenaline, this amazing rush. 
and um, the next day you start. And there's 1,200 people on, on the one that I did. It was the 30th anniversary of the MDS. That, that's what it's known as amongst the community, the MDS. And um, day one, I, I don't know how many kilometers day one was. Nothing amazing. Maybe a marathon. But, you know, 45 degree heat, just insane conditions. And um, when I got in on day one, I was a little dehydrated. I hadn't taken my salt tablets. Um, I was shaking. I couldn't really walk straight. And I said to the people when I passed the finish line, could I go to the medical tent? And I went there and they took my, my vitals and they said, you know, yeah, you need to go on a drip quickly. Had you taken your salt tablets? And I said, no, I'd totally forgotten. Have you eaten today? And I, oh, oh, yeah, sorry, I totally forgot to eat. I was so focused on just getting the day one done. And then, it started, then I had a really amazing experience, which I see a lot on reality shows. I was happy that it looked like the doctor was going to say that I couldn't continue. And this is where the demons crept in. And the demon said, you see, Aaron, you've done it. You, you, you broadcast it on Facebook and, and then you turned up and then on day one, you gave it your best shot and you really wanted to do it. You really wanted to complete it. But the doctor said you couldn't do it. I was so upset because I really wanted to do it. But deep down, I knew that was all bullshit. I wanted the doctor to tell me I couldn't do it. So it would be an easy way out. So I was kind of lying there thinking, well, I'll make a posting on Facebook saying, I gave him a best shot, guys, but I couldn't do it. And about three hours later, doctor came in, it was about four in the morning, and he said, oh, you're, uh, you're obviously quite fit, everything back to normal. You just needed a saline drip and a little bit of rest and a little bit of food. You're good to go, mate. You're good to go. You want, to, you want me to take you back to the tent, and then you can get three hours sleep, and then you start again. And I thought, oh, man, this is not what I want to hear. But again, you have that inner dialogue. So now I'm saying to myself, well, my brain, my ego is saying, you know, just get out of this uh, with the best possible outcome so you don't look like a loser. Uh, but then another part of me is saying, yeah, but you are a loser. If you, go, if you don't do this, you're a loser. Other people might not buy into that. They might buy into the narrative that you really couldn't continue, but you know you're a loser and I have to spend the rest of my life knowing I'm a loser. So I went back to the tent and uh, day two, I was a different Aaron. I, I kind of like passed that point. I'd had that conversation, Aaron and Aaron, you know, we'd spoken with each other and luckily for me, uh, the stronger Aaron won. And uh, day two was brilliant. I was just pumped full of, natural energy and I, I did day two really easily you know day three was a nightmare but I loved it day four took me 26 hours 93 kilometers you know I was taking tramadol just to try and get through it brilliant loved it day five nightmare puking up all over the place couldn't even remember doing it cried most of the time but I completed it <laughs> I, got, I got to the finish line I didn't do it gracefully I think um I was right at the back. If there were 1,200 people that did the MDS, my, my, my ranking was like 1,183. Um, but anyway, whenever you speak to people that have done the marathon, they say, but they don't ask you what time you did it in. They don't even ask you what ranking you had. They just said, do you, did you complete it? And mm. yes, I did. But that's all that matters, you know? The fact that you can... Yeah, 
there's something there that you spoke about that I've mentioned on some other podcasts just an idea that I had that I call the competing selves model. There's always seems to be three selves. One self that's always looking to undermine you. Another self that always wants to see you succeed. And then there's a self in the middle that's just neutral. And really a lot of times when we talk about self-reliance and getting shit done, it comes down to which self are you going to listen to? And what you just spoke about is exactly what happened, right? You had a, a self that said, find a way out of this. Another self that said, if you do, you'll never forgive yourself. And ultimately, you made a decision on who to listen to. And it really comes down to that. It comes down to who you're going to listen to and then just taking the next step. Uh, the Japanese, I think, have a, a word for it. I don't know what the word is, but I think it sums up three aspects of your personality. One is the Aaron that you show your friends. And the other one is the Aaron that you show your family, maybe your wife, really, really close friends. And then the third one is, is you. It's really you. You don't show anyone that one. <laughs> that one you just hide. You do your best to keep it in the, in, in the cupboard. And I, and I understand that. Yeah, no, for sure. You, you also did another um, ultra marathon. Which one was that? Uh, that one was called the Coastal Challenge, which was um, in Costa Rica. And uh, that one was a year or two after the MDS. And again, I got such an adrenaline hit on the ultra marathon the first time around that like all drugs you you want to continue right so I, I i did that one that one was slightly different um it was through the jungles of costa rica and again for listeners that have done any training trekking adventure in the jungle you'll know that it is the worst place on the planet i mean there is nothing romantic about being in the jungle um and the costa rican jungle is is kind of like as pure as it gets and same kind of distance 250 plus um uh, slightly different ethos to the race because you were given food at the end of the day and you had access to a shower and there is a huge difference in running insane distances through the jungle and at the end of the day taking a shower i mean this just revitalizes you in the sahara there was i mean there was just nothing they were just giving you two bottles of water a day and if you had any water left over and you decided to wash with it you know like pour a little bit of water into a cup and then just sprinkle it on your head that was about as good as it got um so costa rica was a slightly different situation but it was more cardiovascularly intense. I mean, it was, it was tough. I had a lot of asthma attacks. I never thought I would, but of course the moisture in the air of the jungle, right? And um, I had two major asthma attacks and I didn't take my inhaler with me, um, basically because my mother never packed my bag. If she would have packed my bag, the inhaler would have been in there, but <laughs> I packed it myself, so there was no inhaler. Um, but yeah, also a great experience. And, and, and also there's this connection to nature. We didn't really speak about it on the Sahara one, but now you mentioned Costa Rica. It reminds me that when you're alone in the middle of the Sahara, and when I say alone, I mean you are alone. There's no one behind you as far as you can see. There's no one in front of you as far as the horizon. In Costa Rica, it's the same thing. Everyone gets split up quite quickly because of the fitness levels, right? So you're alone. And in Costa Rica, I had an asthma attack when I was going up this mountain so bad that, I mean, I just had to stop 
and I remember crawling underneath a bush and I was dehydrated, didn't have a lot of water left. There was still 20 kilometers left to the finish line of that day. And I just had to have a real strong chat with myself and kind of put myself against nature and say, Aaron, look at you. I mean, you just, you're just pathetic underneath this tree and you've got no water and you're having an asthma attack. And I mean, what, what do you want? Who's going to come and help you? But no one's going to come and get me. It's not like I could just radio someone and someone would appear out of a bush and say, oh, you, you know, you're not feeling so good. Jump in the truck and we'll take you to the finish line. It's you, no one else. And you have to have a conversation with yourself and say, well, you got two choices, Aaron. You can just lie here and cry. And then maybe in 12 hours when the organizers realize that you haven't come through, they'll send a search party back into the jungle and they'll find you sobbing away in this bush. If that's what you want, then do that. Or you can regulate your breathing, have a chat with your lungs, dig deep, get back up and finish the bloody race. And again, it's that same dialogue that I'd had in the Sahara. It's the same dialogue I'd had when I swam across to help that lady mosquito diving. It's a dialogue that I've actually had with myself many times. And I enjoy that conversation because it keeps me real. It makes me realize that I am fragile. I am scared. I, 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 I'm, I'm not the alpha male, you know, that I can run across the jungle and I can do all of these things and I'm a tough guy. I'm no tough guy. I know how pathetic I can be. I was kind of crying underneath a bush on a mountain in Costa Rica. But the point is, is I know how to pick myself up. Mm. And I know how to have that inner dialogue and just get it done. And um, it's good if you think you're a tough guy to be knocked down and to be left on the floor crying. I think that's good. Everyone mm. should go through that experience. No, no, I think that's very powerful. And it, again, it speaks to self-reliance. So as we start coming to the end, the one thing I wanted to talk about is you're talking to me right now from Thailand. You run a beautiful retreat there called Tree Roots Retreat. It's partly my home for much of the year as well, even though I'm not there right now because of COVID and I'm stuck on the Isle of Man. But I want you to talk a little bit about the retreat because one of the things that we've been talking about is we're definitely going to be doing this in the future when we start hosting the Art of Self-Reliance um, retreats. That's where it's going to happen. It's going to happen at the retreat that you're sitting at right now that you have put together, which is a beautiful place. Tell us a little bit about it and, and the inspiration for it. Well, the inspiration goes back to, um, again, not following the masses and being an individual because I bought the land and I had this crazy idea of building something that had been sitting in my mind, which was a combination of all of the passions in my life, martial arts, books, architecture, landscape designing, all of these things. So I wanted to put them all into one place and the business plan to make this work was non-existent. And the drawings architecturally to make this place look good were also nothing more than crazy ideas in my mind. And I spoke to several people, um, family, friends, business partners from other businesses, and they all were very, very clear in their advice. Aaron, you are a fruitcake. Do not do this. This will be a failure and you will lose your life savings and um, please don't do it. So of course, you know, when someone says, don't do it, 
we have to do it, right? That's the whole point of life is to do the complete opposite to what everybody tells you. So I bought the land and what I did is I bought a door because I've got a bit of a thing for wooden doors. I bought this wooden door and I built a concrete plinth and I put the wooden door on the plinth, no wall, no building, no structures, just the door. And then I posted that photo on Facebook and said, you know, the beginning of my idea. And everyone just thought, Aaron, well, there's a door to nothing. It's a field full of weeds and, and burnt tree roots. And there's this bloody door. And I said, yeah, yeah, but it's the door to my vision. And um, I started. Luckily for me, the builder seemed to be very confident in my financial ability to pay him. I don't know where he got that from because I had no money at the time, but I didn't, I, I thought best not to say anything. And uh, he just started building. And as he started building, I started to get more work. I started to get contracts that I never thought I would get. Just crazy work coming left, right and center just when the bills were due for the buildings, which was kind of a bit spooky. And um, two years later, the retreat is finished finished with no business plan and no architectural drawings. I'm not saying that's sound advice. I'm just saying for me and my personality, that's the way that it worked for me. And I think you have to be true to your personality, right? So the place is finished. Um, it wasn't quite working <laughs> maybe because there was no business plan, but I was able to listen to advice from people listen to the kind of natural energy of the universe. Um, few key people suddenly appeared in my life at that point, you being one of them, you said earlier that we have a relationship. So of course that, you know, you coming into the retreat many years ago was also a kind of maybe a gift from the gods, who knows. Um, and now in 2020, the retreat has found its rhythm. It's starting to ping. It's, it's, it's speaking to the right people and the right people are coming along and noticing that there's an energy of vibration. And I rather believe maybe stupidly that that vibration comes from the fact that it just grew out of nothing. It was just an organic development of ideas from me and other people. And now when you walk into the place, it's not a place that was designed from the beginning to meet a certain criteria. It was a kind of frenetic, crazy development of all sorts of nonsense going on in my mind. And I love that. And I, and I think that's why it's a great place for people to come, especially to talk about resilience and self-reliance, because this is really evidence, proof that just follow what you want to do and don't let anybody tell you anything else. And, and if it's a failure, it's a failure, but, but you did it, you know, you followed your heart and I put everything into this retreat and I continue to put everything into it. And regardless of the financial return, when I wake up in the morning and I walk out of my room and I see what I have created, ultimately that's all I need really. I mean, a little bit of extra money would be nice, right? But, but just seeing the place, makes me smile. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it's a beautiful place. And, you know, as I noted, I mean, I live there for part of the year and we've done some really cool things there. We're going to do some amazing things in the future. Final thing, Aaron. Yeah. 
leave the listener with some words of wisdom, your final piece of advice, what would you want to leave them with? I, ooh, that's really a tough question. Huh? I think I have always been a little childish in the way that I approach things. And people may have um, misinterpreted that as me not caring or being disciplined, but I've been super focused and super disciplined in achieving what I have in Asia. But in front of that, there's been a playfulness, a kind of don't take yourself too seriously attitude. And I, for me, if I was to speak to someone who was younger and looking for some advice, I would be, listen, just don't take yourself too seriously. Be a good version of yourself and be focused and read that literature and improve your academic knowledge, which ultimately improves your intuition. You know, make sure you're hanging around with the right people. Make sure your environment is perfect. Make sure all of those things are there. But keep smiling. I mean, don't be too serious. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z dot com.